I am Brother Cornell West, and this is Hip Hop Can Save America. Peace and love, everybody. It's your man, Manny Faces. Just wanted to let you know that Hip Hop Can Save America is now available as a live stream show every Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. You can find it at hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Excerpts from that show will be played here on the audio feed, so you'll still get the good interviews that you've been used to. But check out the live stream and check out my free Substack newsletter at mannyfaces.substack.com. That's filled with all kinds of stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and generally hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. For everything hip-hop can save America, hiphopcansaveamerica.com. For everything Manny Faces, mannyfaces.com. And if you find value in this work, you can support it. We'd love to have you aboard as a supporter at patreon.com slash mannyfaces. Now let's go. On this episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, a newly documented deep dive look at one of the most influential record labels and artist collectives in hip hop history. We're talking Cold Chillin' and the Juice Crew with author Ben Merlis. My name is Manny Faces. Let's go. The thing about hip hop uh, today is it's smart. It's insightful. The, the way that they can communicate uh, a complex message in a very short space is, is remarkable. And a lot of these kids, they're not going to be reading the New York Times. That's not how they're getting their information. So hip hop didn't invent anything, but hip hop reinvented everything. Peace and love and happy 2020 to everyone. Uh, we're back with another episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, the podcast that examines ways that hip hop music and culture contributes to humanity in innovative ways, improving lives, livelihoods, and communities across the country in areas including education, health and wellness, politics and activism, business and entrepreneurship, the fine arts, spirituality, and much more. My name is Manny Faces, the creator, producer, and host of the show. I'm an independent journalist and scholar, content creator, public speaker, podcaster, and founder of the Center for Hip Hop Advocacy. If you like smart hip hop stories and discussion, we have an amazing free newsletter filled with examples of hip hop innovation and insight. Sign up or just find out more about our work at hiphopadvocacy.org and follow us on Twitter or Instagram at hiphopadvocacy. Now, Ben Merlis isn't a hip-hop historian by nature, but he has had his feet in the music business for decades. And since his early days, he's been a super fan of rap music, with a particular affinity to the iconic artist collective that emerged from Queensbridge, New York in the late 80s, The Juice Crew. Led by the late pioneering radio jock Mr. Magic and amplified into hip-hop canon by DJ and producer Molly Maul, this trailblazing crew, which consisted of household rap names like Roxanne Shante, Cool G Rap, Biz Markey, Big Daddy Kane, and more, helped put the gold into rap's golden era. While not as commercially successful as other well-known rap labels like Def Jam or Tommy Boy, the Cold Chillin' imprint was arguably just as influential as any other in exploding the popularity of the genre. Ben Merlis saw that the story of this legacy was worthy of proper documentation, and he's woven together a fascinating look at the inner workings of these game changers in his new book, Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. Under the occasional rumble of a passing subway train, I spoke with Ben at the Powerhouse Arena Bookstore in Brooklyn, New York, just before an author talkback session that also featured Juice Crew members Master Ace and Craig G. 
Here's my conversation with Ben Merlis. Ben, thank you for taking the time out before your uh, New York stop of your book tour. Thanks for having uh, me, Manny. Uh, my pleasure, man. And um, we're here at Powerhouse Arena Bookstore, mm-hmm. which sounds like it should be a, an arena. I thought it was. When Rakim did his book signing here a month ago, I yeah. saw. I thought, man, this guy's doing signings at arenas. <laughs> I can't compete with that. And yeah. then I found out that's an actual bookstore. And then I got booked here. So The, the arena, <laughs> the arena tour. It's actually a really nice space. Uh, it's going to be filled up soon with old school hip hop fans, I'm sure, and probably some general music fans. I think that this is the kind of book that might appeal not only to people within the culture, and yeah. whatnot, but I think, and, and with any book, you yeah. want to make sure you get the widest audience as possible. Yeah. Is that something going in you were trying to kind of aim it at yeah. people within the culture or really try to hope that others from outside would see what kind of a, a great story uh, this was? I think the latter. I wanted to do a good job of explaining the story, which really begins with this, I like to think of it as the second generation of hip hop, the, the people who were raised on it, you know, people who started putting out records in the 80s. And so I did my best to explain the situations that the people were in, the MCs, DJs, producers, the independent hip hop labels that were in their infancy at the time. And, and so I think that, for example, my publisher is not a hip hop person, but he thoroughly enjoyed my book and could follow it right you know it wasn't it wasn't so inside baseball right but if but if you are an inside baseball type of a hip-hop fan you're gonna you're gonna really love the book because there's stuff in there that i didn't know going into it and just like little tidbits here and there yeah yeah, i've i've read part of it uh it is very detailed Uh, of course it's it's mainly interviews uh that are kind of woven in together with a narration with a narrative right exactly kind of a that's that's exactly what it is yeah sort of like an oral oral history oral history every player from this organization and it's all its tentacles that you cover that you interviewed. I'd like to think more than half of the players, definitely not all of them. Okay, uh, well, <laughs> but, fair but, enough. But enough to tell a story. And you know, the people I couldn't get, they've been interviewed many times and I was able to pull from, right. you know, some interviews of those. they've done on podcasts within the last five years. It's a good time we're living in where podcasts exist and also where whosample.com exists and <laughs> discogs.com right. exists where you can really look up stuff that would have been a real hassle to do right. 10 or 20 years ago. It would ago. have been record crate digging for weeks yeah. to try to find some original references. Uh, let's talk about this for a minute. What brought you to this, to this story, to this book? Uh, I've just been a huge fan of hip hop going back to the mid eighties when I was a little kid. I'm 41 now. So we're really talking six, seven years old. And then Cold Chillin' in particular, uh, we would get all those records as they were coming out because my dad worked for Warner Brothers Records and Warner Brothers Records was the distributor of Cold Chillin' for about six years uh, from 87 to 93. So we would get records that would come to our house. The first one that I remember was Have a Nice Day by Roxanne Shante, a 12-inch single. Right. And uh, we loved it so much. And not long after that, Bismarcky uh, going off. You were in L.A.? I was in, yeah, I'm from L.A. I've yeah. always lived in Southern California. So 
at that time, you know, I'm, I grew up in Long Island, so we were mm. in the shadow of New York City, so right. we were like a half step behind everything. Yeah. How far behind was <laughs> L.A. at the time? Well, L.A. had, at the time... I mean, you know, and, and granted, there's an L.A. scene as well that was that was growing, but at the time you're talking about, what was happening well, in L.A.? Right, right around the time we discovered Cold Chillin' Records, Ice-T put out his first album on Sire, so he was really the the torchbearer for L.A. hip-hop. Right. Six in the morning, police at my door. Fresh Shadita squeak across the bathroom floor. Out my back window, I'm my escape. Didn't even get a chance to grab my old school tape. You know, that same year we got N.W.A. and the Posse, so. That GTA, cause the boys in the hood are always hard. They come talking that trash, we'll pull your car. Knowing nothing in life but to be legit. Don't quote me, boy, cause I ain't said shit. So, and we saw the LA Dream Team the year before that at the Wilton Theater. So there was, yeah, by the mid-80s, there was definitely a, sure. a vibrant LA hip-hop scene. I'd say maybe in the early 80s, New York was leaps and bounds ahead. Right. So when you first started kind of hearing the the the, the cold chill and the, I'd say the golden era stuff, yeah. I guess that's what, you I know, call it that. Yeah. yeah. What was different about it? What, what struck we, you as a young tot in LA? There was just a playfulness about it. Marley Marl was initially the producer for all the records on Cold Chillin and uh, he had a unique way of cutting up drum beats to make new beats and then layer them with uh, vocal samples scratched in to create new choruses and, and these great James Brown samples. My dad would say, I know this record. <laughs> he, he, would, he would like play, like guess that sample. Of course, we never knew if he was right or not. <laughs> and years later, year, and years later, now that we can look this up, he does play that game. And I'm like, well, hey, you're not as good as this as we thought you were in the eighties. <laughs> right. He's running the back, looking at the ultimate breaks and beats uh, <laughs> collection. Yeah. And so, cause he was getting all those, you know, he was getting James Brown records when they were coming out sure. in the sixties. And then, you know, you have these really strong personalities. Roxanne Chante has this voice that is, totally distinguishable from anyone else. And then Big Daddy Kane comes along and he's just sort of this, he's just heads and shoulders above everyone else in terms of his um, lyrical ability. Let it roll, get bold. I just can't hold back a fold because I'm a man with soul and control and effects. So what the heck? Rock the disco text and this groove is what's next. Attack, react, exact, the Mac, I move you with. A strong song as long as you groove. He was also a battle rapper before he was making records and, and during. And he... Uh, was like the consummate showman. He had yeah. he had Scoob and Scrap Lover doing the dances, and and uh, it was like the total package. Yeah. And then Cool G Rap, of course, was one of the first guys to rap about what later got called gangster rap. And he just an, also an incredible lyricist. And Bismarcky in a class of his own. Yes, for sure. Is how you, you can't put that guy in a box. No. Yeah. It's the, I think it's what it was uh, such a great collective because of those separate personalities, yeah. separate styles that all kind of had a some kind of DNA sharing sharing some DNA of being from the boroughs, being from 
yeah. you know, New York at that time. Yeah. And 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 vibing well with Marley's uh, production. Yeah, and Craig G put out this record with Marley called Drop in Science. Yeah. When I get stupid to the point that I'm mentally mad. My rhymes start the flow, so I simply must brag about my style that makes you vibrant. I keep driving until the song turns me to a hip hop giant. Me and Marley Marley we're going one on one. For any sucker rapper that chooses to come. And for me, Craig G, aka the Kingpin, I drop science. Can't you tell how I'm singing? They hate how and I'm someone, I wish I remember. I wish my father remembered who it was, but he he said he, he came home from work one day and he said, there's someone at my office, I want to say in the black music department, who saw the record drop in science and got upset because they he thought it was giving a, a negative message to children that they should drop out of <laughs> science class. Like, I'm telling you to drop out of science right, class. Like, right. how could you, you know, d- derive that from that, from right. that record? It's ridiculous. But right. that was one of our favorite records too. That's funny. And then yeah. of course Master Ace comes along. Shot from a cannon. I am the man in charge and I'm planning. Jam strong enough that it can lift your soul. I'm the originator and my rhymes are made of gold. Once you hear the capital A, rap it'll stay with you for a while. It won't go away unless you force it because it stays with you, my friend. And if you force it away, I'ma hit you again. Right, right. And words and just like really clever uh clever artists uh, artists. You know, yeah. not just rappers. They were starting to figure out how to make songs, you know, f- compilation albums, like really putting things together. Right. Because at first you'd have, before hip hop is on record, you have park jams where people rap endlessly and, and then pass the mic on and there's not really discernible choruses. It's not mm-hmm. really put into traditional song structure. Right. But then, you know, by this second generation, you have people are figuring out like, a three-minute song with verses and choruses right. and, you know, a hook that people can sing along to. Right, and right. Then the sampling just got better. The technology got better. So you're a fan uh, growing up. And now as you get older, what are you doing in life? I do music, music publicity for a number of artists. Um, Jimi Hendrix's estate, Roy Orbison's estate. Oh, okay. Uh, ZZ Top, Habco Records, Carlene Carter, a bunch of people. Nice. Not hip, no one hip hop. Right. But, you know, this was a, a passion project. When did it coalesce? When did it strike you uh, as, hey, you know what would be a great story to tell? Sometime in 2017. How did it happen? I just thought it would be cool to tell the story. <laughs> okay. Because it was, um, you have a lot of books about Def Jam right. and, you know, the Beastie Boy. Well, I guess they hadn't put out their book yet, their own book yet. But that's pretty well covered. And I thought Cold Chillin' didn't do as well as Def Jam or even Tommy Boy sales-wise, but influence-wise, I would say it's right up there with, with the best of them. And you make that point very early in the beginning of yeah. the book. You ba- they say this isn't about, you know, the most commercially successful. Right. Uh, although artist-wise, you might say, you know, could have, you know, if you look at it from an artistic standpoint, yeah. probably is equal to plays with the best of them. Right. But you said there was an influence there. They were the first to do some things yeah, they were business-wise and culturally in hip-hop. What, what were some of those things? I mean, we touched it with the, putting out a compilation album. I think that was pretty right. new in the... It was fairly new. There was this Herbie Lovebug put out this record as Herbie's Machine maybe a year before Marley Marl put out In Control Volume 1. Right. But Marley Marl, In Control Volume 1 is like producer as artist. And so you have right. him doing all the, the producing... And then different uh, rappers performing on each track. So it's a compilation, technically. Right. But it's billed as a Marley Marl album. And then you have 
Roxanne Shante uh, in 84 puts out this record Roxanne's Revenge which is a diss record dissing UTFO let me tell you and explain them all to you I met this dude with the name of a hat I didn't even walk away I didn't give him no rest but then he got real mad and he got a little tired if he worked for me you know he would be fine he wears a Kango and that is cute but he ain't got the money and he ain't got the loot and every time and that that's I kind of that's as far as I know the first of its kind in hip hop and then, of course, G-Rap and Kane. And along with Rakim, who's, you know, he wasn't in the Juice Crew, but Marley did produce his first single, uh, Eric B. and Rakim's first single in, in Queensbridge. So those three guys, Cool G-Rap, Big Daddy Kane, and Rakim really pushed the envelope as far as what could be done lyrically. And it's kind of like, there's the way people rapped before those three guys and the right. way people rapped after. Right. And let's ignore the way people rap now because it's like, <laughs> whoa, what happened there? We lost the plot somewhere. And also, you know, you got Marley with the samples and, and then you have this kind of, well, you have this sort of decline that's marked by lawsuits related to uncleared samples, particularly with sure. the Bismarcky record yep, that yep. samples Gilbert O'Sullivan. I'm alone again. Alone again, naturally. So I went into the and then Body Count puts out this song on their first album called Cop Killer, and that pisses a lot of cops off. <laughs> and they boycott Time Warner, which was the corporate parent of Warner Brothers Records at the right. time. And so they take all the labels under the Warner umbrella and say, Yeah, you can't put, we're not going to put out this record. And the one that got hit in Cold Chillin' was Cool G Rap and DJ Polo, Live and Let Die. So they ended up having to... Um, Cold Chillin' actually put that album out independently, but I believe that Warner gave them money to do that because they felt so bad about... Mm. About, like having, to drop about it. having to drop it because yeah. of this political pressure. Yeah, the tide certainly yeah. turned against yeah. hip-hop as a genre in general. Yeah, and uh, I think it really hurt, it hurt Warner Brothers long-term because then you have Interscope coming up and they they end up having a, a deal with universal and underneath that is death row and all this gangster stuff that just continues to sell millions and millions every year going into right. the 90s and warner is kind of left in the dust because right. of this this political pressure that was might put have on actually them. been able to balance yeah. The, yeah. the scene a little bit right you know i mean we had g-rap but it wasn't all that that style of uh, of West Coast gangster rap that then became prominent yeah. during that time. And that actually, that Cool G Rap and DJ Polo album, I like to think of it as America's Most Wanted in reverse because mm. the first Ice Cube solo album, America's Most Wanted, is Ice Cube, a West Coast right. rapper, right. going to uh, New York to have the Bomb Squad produce his album. Yeah. And they're known for being Public Enemies producers. Cool G Rap and DJ Polo, Live and Let Die, is... Cool G Rap flying out to California and working with Sir Jinx, who's right, right. Ice Cube's guy. Right. So and have and Ice Cube's on that record too. Right. Right. So it's kind of neat, but yeah. But uh, now more people should have heard it. Well, that's say there's some yeah there was some great cross pollination yeah. happening at this time also. Yeah. Um, going back to how the rest of the world looks at the genre, you know, and how rap got a bad rap for those years specifically. Uh, and to this day, I think suffers greatly from that, uh, from the way public perception turned and the way mm. media turned and, and mainstream media. There was time that hip hop had good media and was able to reel it back in and yeah. present some balance. But it wasn't at the 
you read what the New York Times was saying about hip hop in the 90s, it was not, there was nothing positive. But then 20 years later, everyone looks back in 1993, 1994 yeah. as these really fast, fantastically, yeah. you know, creative years. But at the time, it was all covering the, the trials Is and it, the, yeah. Yeah. So I right. think that the, the public perception, the media angle that was taken for many years really damaged hip hop. Yeah. So again, taking it back to how important a story, you know, putting together a book like this and telling these stories about the ingenuity, about the perseverance, and as you say, adolescence making an adolescent genre. Right. How, how important is that? And how has been sort of the feedback from the people like like your, uh, uh, you said who, your publisher, who wasn't necessarily a hip hop guy, but loves the book. Right. How, how important is it? And what has that kind of feedback been? It's been positive, mostly. People who've read the book. Uh, so far, the, the, the reaction has been, been largely positive. How important do you think it is to contribute in this way, you know, to like the canon of, of hip hop history? With this detailed a story, getting the voices of the actual participants, something that we know that the pioneers and the architects and the, and the people from the, the, that, those generations of, of hip, they're still around. So I, yeah, we actually have that's, that. That's why it's really important. Yeah. Because, you know, my book is part of this series of books called RPM and uh, that BMG is putting out. Each book is about a different record label, and mine is the only one about a hip-hop label, but one of them is about Excella, which is an old a blues label, and one is about Specialty, which was Little Richard's label in the 50s, and virtually, it's, there's no oral history, because virtually everyone is dead. Little Richard's not dead, but he doesn't do interviews anymore, so... Right. Those opportunities are... Right, those opportunities are, right. are gone forever. If, if, if someone had written a book about Excello or Specialty in the 80s, that would be, you know, a 30-year difference, which is what we're talking about here, like... I'm really talking about what things that happened 30 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you would have had a, you would have gotten good stories out of a lot of the people that were involved uh, yeah. uh, directly. Which is what you did here yeah, for the most part. Right. Just real, you know, real quick process wise, how were these interviews done? Uh, how did you kind of wrangle it all? How was it coordinating it all? W were they in person? Were they remote? Mostly they but over the phone because I'm out in LA. Sure. But some people, not many in LA. I would just, anyone I knew who had anything to do with hip hop, I'd say, do you know anyone who knows anyone who knows anyone who knows right. Cool G Rap or whoever, right. whoever it was. And whoever you needed next. Just keep bugging people and hoping for the best. And sometimes things worked out more often than not that things worked out. Yeah. And so I'd kind of set personal deadlines, like all interviews should be done around this time of, of the year. And then I should be writing one chapter every two weeks. And there's 13 chapters in the book, so it'll take me 26 weeks, which is half a year. And so I'll have a, a finished manuscript within about a 12-month period of signing the book deal. And that's what happened. So, okay. yeah, it was, uh, I've been it was a real labor. <laughs> I've been writing a book for about seven years, so I'm jealous of anyone who actually gets uh -huh. it done. But, uh, but, but, but did you have... A publisher who has a deadline? Not yet. See, that's yeah, it, though. That, right. Like, once you get that, you're going to get it done. Right, because if right. I didn't have, if I was just doing this and then hoping to, like, shop it once it was done, I'd right. be waiting forever to get the whatever four people who wouldn't <laughs> talk to me. Right. And, and I would be waiting forever. So yeah. it's like, it's a good thing there was a deadline put on me. Yeah, yeah. I and I was so you. paranoid that I'd end up, you know, the last 30 days leading up to the deadline, I'd, I'd literally be awake, you know, 23 hours a day, right. madly typing that, <laughs> that I scared myself into actually pacing myself and doing, because I'm a last minute kind of a guy. And but I, I, I really paced myself. So it was, it ended up not having to uh, lose sleep. Very cool. For super fans from the, the, the In Control album was very special to me personally. I was like 17 or so. I was taking a 
train to Atlanta, Georgia, uh-huh. which is like a train. It was like an eighteen-hour train ride, wow. and that album had just dropped. I was going to visit some girlfriend that I had met over the summer, and I was gonna. I was traveling for the first time, and I listened to that album. I mean, you know, back to front, flip the cassette, you know, play it back over and over and oh, over yeah. again on that trip. So whenever I hear anything from that from that album, you, knew it, you know it by heart. I know it by heart. That that takes me back to that that yeah, time, yeah. that trip. You know, music is great for that. Why should super fans? Uh, read your your book because they'll learn things that they didn't know yeah. i mean it's very detailed like i said it's all in one conversation place. is it, it's all you in one store place story in one place yeah right you yeah. can get tidbits from individual interviews yeah. but of course when you put together something like this it's as if they're all speaking in a room right, together right right anything stand out as a super anecdotal moment that you were like really uh there was this cane shooting someone no there <laughs> there here this is a uh, an interesting thing was um Easy Mo B telling me that he played Blind Alley by The Emotions for Bismarcky in his apartment in the um, Lafayette Gardens housing project in Bed-Stuy. And then Bismarcky said, what record's that, Booby? Because Booby was Easy Mo B's nickname. And this is before Easy Mo B ever produced any records himself. He said, like, you know, six months later, he turns on Rap Attack or something, and he hears Ain't No Half-Steppin' by Big Daddy Kane, and it's Blind Alley by The Emotions is the main sample. And he goes, oh, so Biz went out and bought that record, turned Kane and Cool V on to it, and and then Mr. C, and then then Kane brought the record to Marley Marl, and then the record got made. Yeah under Kane's supervision, but it all came, it all came from Easy Mo B. And that's when, and that's when he realizes I have a good ear for this. Like I know, wow. I, I, I hear things in, in music that people haven't figured out yet. And then the, the following year, he ends up producing a couple, a couple songs on the second uh, Big Daddy Kane album. And then his career takes off from there. He ends up working with uh, yeah. the, the RZA and the Jizza before they were, when they were, Prince Rakim and <laughs> G- the genius, yeah, G- and he works ends up working with uh, uh, matter of fact, Tupac and Biggie. That's right. Yep. And a matter of fact, uh, I think Easy Mobi is briefly in the in the Wu Tang uh, Hulu series. I okay, think they make reference to Easy Mobi uh, buying a bunch of equipment at Sam Ash or something like yeah. that. Yeah, he Mo told B. me about buying equipment. Yeah, yeah, he said he bought once he got paid for doing the two songs on the Big Daddy Kane album. He went out and he bought, I think it was an SP twelve hundred. Sampler. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what it was. That's 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 yeah. featured because uh, Riz is trying to buy it, oh. and, and in the show, Easy Mo B just bought the last one. Oh. so that's actually that's translated this to the. This to the is series. where you mash things together <laughs> so you can you can. I mean, maybe he did buy I mean, the last yeah, one. Yeah, maybe he did buy the last you one. Know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's like he walked out and they're like, "Yeah, that was Easy Mo B." He's like, "Yeah, he's bought like ten thousand dollars worth of stuff." You know, just walking uh-huh. out the Sam Ash, and then so Rizza couldn't get the SP twelve that day. He eventually did get it. But okay, it's the, yeah, the yeah. series. Yeah, there the, you go. Yeah, the Wu Tang. So that's that's the really that is that's inside baseball, yeah, but it's in the gene- it's a cool genesis of how careers got built off of these seminal moments. Yeah, that's right. In the projects, in the in the in the in the streets, in the clubs, in the studios. Yeah, exactly. So, it's, it's like amazing. I mean, and then you have these records that uh live on forever. I mean, to me, they live on forever. It seems that in hip hop you don't have People are so busy looking forward that no one's really looking back. Mm. The way it is in rock, you know, you have you have classic rock, sure. And I, I, you know, you do have the LL Cool J, Rock the Bells, Sirius XM channel, yeah. which is classic hip hop. Yeah, but it's not at the level, you know. Right. 
They've tried it with commercial radio. Some stations yeah. have, they've tried to do the classic. Oh, okay. What they'll do is they'll just kind of go through the same, you know, 30 or 40 typical, yeah. you know. It takes two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know. I heard just a friend today when I was having breakfast in a restaurant in Manhattan. Sure, so. you know, OPP. You'll yeah. have all these, you know, like kind of like seminal hits, but it wouldn't be. Deep. Uh, it wouldn't be deep yeah. because that's not. You know, I don't know if that's, I don't know if it would work or not, and, yeah. but I think they should try. I also think that those classic stations are the right place, would have been the right place for artists like Master Ace, who's continually dropping yeah. new music that's right. to have their new music. Because people like Master Ace and, and other artists that are, you know, older artists, but still make music, yeah. don't have an outlet. And he that, and that, he continues to make incredible records. A hundred percent. His story was great. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's like, where do they go? Well, if you're doing classic radio. Yeah. That should be where they go, but commercially, right. on the commercial stations, yeah. they wouldn't I've do that. I've heard Eric Sermon complain about this, and yeah. I agree with him wholeheartedly. Yeah. Like the Who can sell out an arena, right? But if you want a hip, old school hip hop acts to sell out an arena, you got to get ten of them, you know, <laughs> right? To play, play True. three or four or five songs back to back. You don't have anything comparable to the, but maybe that's a cultural thing. Maybe rock is more um, nostalgic. Maybe there's nostalgia baked into it the way there mm. isn't in hip hop. It's a yeah. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon you speak of. Yeah. But uh, I guess that'll be maybe the next book. <laughs> ben Merlis, thank you so yeah, much for your thanks, time, thanks, man. And I appreciate your book. And I appreciate, so, you know, whenever somebody takes time to take a serious look at, at, at hip hop music and culture surrounding it, putting quality uh, work into it, man. I appreciate it. I know yeah. that us fans do as well. Yeah, thanks, man. And I just want to say that Manny Faces was my favorite Masters of the Universe toy when ah, I was a kid. I love changing the face. That's what's up. I have the toy. I'm mad there's no Funko Pop. They haven't made a Funko Pop for Manny Faces. They have like five billion other ones, and they, they uh, only have like three or four from the... Yeah. Know, I wasn't even a fan. I just... I was doing rap names, and I used to be schizophrenic. Okay. But we're okay now. And, um, <laughs> and uh, it was between Manny Faces or Dick Dastardly. Okay. Those are my choices. Yeah. And I was like, let me go with Manny Face and it's stuck. <laughs> so I've been this way for cool. you know, 15 years. But thank you uh, yeah. for that. Interestingly enough, we'll just take it right back to, to the book and why this is, you know, as a, as a real fan of, of Coach and Artist, my favorite song, my favorite rap song is Ain't No Half Steppin'. It's, mine that's, too. That's mine. That's my favorite song. Two years yep. ago, my son, who's now 21, but it shows, you know, where his head is at. Two years ago, he buys me for my birthday, the 45. Wow. Which I didn't even know there was one. Yeah. Pretty cool. I think the 45s. Because um, it was like right around that they, cusp of, you know, are they yeah. still made? And rap didn't have a lot of 45s. They, they made a lot of them for the UK market. Yeah. Not as many for the US market. So it's my one of my prized possessions. I have a yeah. bunch of vinyl. My dad was a vinyl collector. That and um, be uh, I'm a Man by Bo Diddley. Okay. I have a 45. Those yeah. are my two prized Wow. Uh, prize possessions. And uh, so, but yeah, man. Yeah, amazing. You know, have step in. That's right. All right Word, bro. I'm ready. That's what. <laughs> okay. Good to meet you, man. You too. Appreciate you. Word. I'm ready. Rapper stepping to me. They want to get some. But I'm the cane, so yo, you know the outcome. Another victory. They can't get with me. So pick a PC date because you're history. I'm the authentic poet to get lyrical. For you to beat me, it's going to take a miracle and Okay, there you have it. A look at the story behind one of rap's most influential collectives. For the full story, grab Ben Merlis' book, Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records, a part of BMG's RPM book series, wherever you get books. Thanks again for taking the time to listen to the world's smartest hip-hop podcast. Please make sure you've subscribed to us on your favorite podcast app and that you rate, review us, and share us with anyone you think would dig what we do. The Hip Hop Can Save America is brought to you by the Center for Hip Hop Advocacy, dedicated to preserving, protecting, and promoting the ability of hip hop music, culture, and spirit 
to improve humanity, fight injustice, innovate industries, and save lives. If you have a product, service, or story you want to get out to a rapidly growing audience of people just like you, you can sponsor this podcast. We also accept tax-deductible donations to help make these podcasts and our other work possible. Visit hiphopadvocacy.org to learn more, to contact us, or to contribute. The show is produced and edited by me through the award-winning podcast and audio journalism production studio, Many Faces Media. Producers of acclaimed social justice journalism meets music podcast, Newsbeat, as well as several other shows from across the worlds of business, marketing, culture, and more. Visit us at www.mannyfacesmedia.com. And as always, a special shout out to our associate producer, Summer. You can check out Summer's amazing work at the Mixtape Museum, archiving and preserving mixtapes throughout history. Check it out at mixtapemuseum.org. And once again, I'm Manny Faces. Follow me on Twitter at Manny Faces or Instagram at Manny Faces NY. I'll be back soon with more episodes of Hip Hop Can Save America, a.k.a. the world's smartest hip-hop podcast. Until then, thanks for listening. Peace out. Once again, thanks for listening to another episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, a.k.a. the world's most important hip-hop podcast. My name is Manny Faces. You can find out more about the show at hiphopcansaveamerica.com. You can watch the show now as a live stream on YouTube, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Check back for all the replays as well. The interviews from the live stream will be brought here onto the audio feed, so you always get the best of the live stream. You can also check out our Substack newsletter. It's free at mannyfaces.substack.com, filled with stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and in general, hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. <laughs> Eternal shouts to our consulting producer, Summer McCoy. Be sure to check out her dope initiatives, Hip Hop Hacks, and the Mixtape Museum. We'll be back soon with another dope episode, but check us out on the live stream as well. Mondays, 9 p.m. Eastern, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Until next time, it's Many Faces wishing peace and love to you and yours.